This is an ABC podcast. Just a heads up, this week's episode is one from our archives. It's one of my favourites from last year. Take a listen. When I was a kid, my parents only spoke to me in Urdu. They figured once I went to kindergarten, I'd pick up English, and by then I'd know enough Urdu to be successfully bilingual. Or That's me proving they were right, I can still speak it. But the thing is, as soon as I went to school and learned to speak English, I never wanted to speak Urdu again. In fact, I wanted to distance myself from it and my Pakistani heritage as much as possible, to the point where my Urdu now is nowhere near as good as it once was. It's such a common, common story. And one of the reasons why kids are so eager to move into the adopted country's languages, I think precisely because they get all kinds of cues about what the dominant language is. This is Julie Sedevi. I'm a linguist and an author. I live in Calgary, Canada. She's the author of the book Memory Speaks on losing and reclaiming language and self. And she's intimately familiar with this process where an immigrant child rejects their language in favor of English. Yeah, I have a very complicated linguistic history. So until the age of about two years old, the only language I ever heard around me was Czech. I was born in what was then Czechoslovakia. When I was about two, we fled the country for political reasons and then kind of wandered through Europe for a while. After stints in Austria and Italy, her family landed in Montreal, Canada, just days before her fourth birthday. And as soon as I started school, very, very quickly shifted over into the dominant language around me, which was English. So much so that my siblings and I pretty much stopped speaking Czech at home. And as English was replacing Czech as your language as a child, did you care much at that time or what did you think of that? Not at the time. You know, when I look back at myself as a kid, it was very, very clear that English and to uh, some extent French was the language to learn to speak if one hoped to fit into the world around you. Mm-hmm. You know, there were subtle cues that I got from other kids. If they heard me speaking Czech to one of my siblings in the schoolyard, they would just kind of look at us a little strangely as if they were realizing that, oh, you're a little different from us. And I remember that being an unpleasant feeling. And I remember also getting just tons of approval for our progression in English. So that was the language we leaned towards. More and more, it was the language of my role models, the language of my heroes and heroines in books. So I did not feel a sense of loss at the time. And, you know, the end result was that by the time I was a young adult, I had not progressed in the language and in fact had lost a great deal of what I had originally had as a child. It would take Julie decades and the death of her father to understand what she'd really lost. The only person I spoke Czech with on a regular basis was my father. And then when he died a number of years ago, I really felt that my connection with that language had been severed. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the multilingual mind and what it means to lose your language. So I I make the analogy that adding a language to a mind is like adding a child to a household, right? It can absolutely be done. And many happy households have multiple children and many very happy minds have multiple languages in them. Uh, But it does change the dynamics when you introduce a new one. Um, And the attention is shared and split between languages, just as it is between children. And you have to take care to not privilege one at the expense of the others. 
So there's a certain amount of competition always between them, such that if you neglect a language through disuse, its volume is just going to get softer and softer and softer in the mind and eventually might erode to some extent. And tell me a bit more about when your father died, why it was then that you understood the magnitude of what you'd lost in terms of language. You know, in retrospect, I realize just what a a growing chasm there was between I mean, my parents, especially my dad, who didn't master English quite as well as my mother did, you know, there were just all kinds of conversations we couldn't have with each other. I couldn't express my political views with him. I couldn't express complicated feelings with him. And he was not particularly articulate in the language that I felt most comfortable with. So I didn't experience him very often as someone who was eloquent, as someone who was well-spoken, which of course he was in his native tongue. Mm. Unfortunately, we're such a funny species. We only realize the value of something once we lose it. Mm. Um, so I think it was that concrete disconnection that just made me realize like, oh, wait, there's no check around me. And this was still largely, you know, there weren't the same resources yet on the internet that there are now. So that was, you know, part of it. And certainly also the feeling of sadness that there were many things that had been unsaid between us over the course of his lifetime. Since then, you know, I've rejuvenated my Czech degree that I didn't have at the time of his death. And I feel that I would be able to have some of those conversations with him now. And of course, I can't. That's awful. That's, that's, um, gosh. It's a great regret. Yeah. It's, it's one of the greatest regrets of my life. And I often hear younger people talking about how they might feel pressure from their parents to retain their heritage language or express that it's not a language that's particularly relevant to them. And I think about myself as a young adult and realizing that I had had those feelings at that point in my life when I was busy establishing myself in my career and starting a new family and feeling all of those daily pressures. Czech just really didn't seem that important. But it is a regret now. Julie was young when she immigrated to Canada, only four, so it's not a big surprise that she lost a lot of her Czech language skills. In fact, research suggests the earlier a child is moved to a new country, the quicker and more comprehensively they typically lose their language. So in my own family, we happen to have a sample of six, six children. And generally, what I see is that the oldest siblings have the strongest check that's been retained in, for the most part, even to the degree to which we're able to pronounce certain sounds in Czech that are very difficult. And my younger brother was never able to produce the R sound in Czech, the one that you say in the name of the Czech composer Dvořák. Everybody says Dvořák or something like that. <laughs> And that's a sound that is typically acquired very late in childhood for, for Czech children. Apart from age, there's another, perhaps less obvious factor that can influence language loss as well. The degree of emotional attachment that people have to their first languages does seem to be potentially a factor. And there's a, a fascinating study that was done actually that looked at a population that had traumatic experiences in their mother tongue. That study was carried out by linguist Monica Schmidt, and it looked at Jewish people who'd fled Germany in three distinct phases in the 1930s. And those phases corresponded with the intensifying persecution of Jewish people over time as the Nazi regime kind of began moving from a phase of discriminating against Jews professionally towards outright 
deportation and killing of Jews. So those who left in the first phase, essentially because they found that their professional opportunities were beginning to close down, tended to maintain the strongest ties to their German language. Uh, whereas those who had really suffered horrific violence and uh, oppression were the most likely to want to abandon their mother tongue. So their German was the poorest. And in many cases, they were very, very uninterested in speaking German at all uh, because of the experiences that they'd had in that language. Wow. Is that the first sort of study that illustrates the link between trauma and language loss? Yeah, that's the only one that I'm aware of that looks at the issue in any systematic detail. Certainly, I've heard anecdotes of people in um, the region where I live who come from Indigenous backgrounds and went through our residential school programs where they, you know, they suffered not just tremendous criticism of their languages, but also, in many cases, outright violence and deprivation. As a result, there has just been a, a dramatic disconnection between current generations of Indigenous peoples and the languages that they've spoken historically for, for long periods of time. Of course, this disconnection didn't just happen in Canada, where Julie lives. It's a story that's sadly way too familiar for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities here in Australia as well. And the impact that loss of language and culture has, even generations later, is devastating. In Canada, there have been some studies looking at some markers of well-being, including suicide rates in Indigenous communities. And one study found a very dramatic correlation between suicide rates uh, such that in communities where the majority spoke their native language, there were far lower rates of suicide than in communities where a very small number of people spoke the native language. And that speaks, I think, to the disconnection that occurred as a result of this break in the transmission of language, because languages you know, the, the vehicle for our lives, it's the means through which we raise our children, communicate our values, communicate our cultures, and to eradicate those languages and sever that connection, I think, has been incredibly traumatizing and disruptive for those communities. Yeah, I found that statistic really remarkable and, and surprising to see so starkly how intrinsic language is to well-being. Yeah, and I think it's because, I mean, it's hard to know whether all things being equal, language is the decisive factor. In many cases, language may be somewhat of a proxy measure for um, other ways in which those communities may have maintained mm. uh, ties to their ancestral heritage. But language certainly seems to be very powerful as a, a cue for people, you know, as to how to engage with their social environments. And how is the loss of Indigenous languages distinctly traumatic compared to losing language after having immigrated from elsewhere? Can you describe that? Oh, sure. Well, for uh, I mean, the simple reason that uh, I can go back to my home country and reconnect with my home culture. You know, there's a whole nation there that speaks Czech. And even though my Czech has largely eroded and I have a very, very patchy connection to it, I can go rejuvenate that connection. Mm. Indigenous languages are in the position where many of them are on the brink of extinction or there are very, very few remaining native speakers. In North America, we've lost about 90% of our indigenous population. 
their whole cultural context has just been kind of shredded. Yeah, I thought that passage in the book also was really illuminating because I hadn't quite thought of it in that way, the, the idea that there's nowhere to go back to to, to learn because, you know, of colonization. Yeah, there's nowhere to go back to. That's right. And, you know, the the number of speakers in many cases are dwindling and getting much older. And there's just a tremendous burden on those few speakers to maintain and carry forward the culture. And moreover, many of those older speakers are themselves traumatized and have have had very negative reactions around speaking their own native languages. It's. I feel like it's an aspect of colonization most people just don't pay attention to or have any sense of. Do, do you get that sense? Yes, and I think part of the reason for that is that we're used to thinking of languages in very instrumental ways. You know, we think of them often as tools for communicating or transmitting information, and one tool is just as good as another. And I think what we ignore is the depth of the emotional connections that we have to our languages and the degree to which you simply can't replicate the culture of a group by transferring it to a language. You know, if you think Mm. of the body of literature that arose in ancient Greece, for example, and yes, we have translations of it, but if uh, that language had suddenly ceased to be spoken, I think it would not have been carried forward through the generations the way that it has been. How widespread is language extinction worldwide? You know, how many languages are under threat of extinction right now? So those estimates vary because, of course, we can't look into the future with any degree of certainty. But there's general agreement that of roughly the six to 7,000 languages that are spoken in the world, about half of them are in danger of being extinct within three generations or so. Some people put that risk at a much higher level. You know, estimates have gone as high as 90% of the world's languages. But generally, I think linguists converge on the sense that 50% is likely to be lost over the next few generations. One language that's already been lost is called Iak. It was spoken by the Iak people of Alaska, but the last native speaker, a woman named Marie Smith-Jones, died in 2008. That's an interesting language because there are now attempts to revive it from written documents. So there's a great flurry of activity now to try to document and uh, put in writing or into recorded archives some of the language that remains. And, you know, enough of the language has been written down that there are attempts now to reteach it anew to younger generations. And in terms of your own language loss, when you were researching all of this, how did it get you to reflect on your own loss of the Czech language? Well, I think in a way it was the other way around. It was the realization of my own disconnection from Czech and what that meant for me that really prompted me to think again of what I had previously read about the extinction of indigenous languages. So I had, you know, always appreciated on an intellectual level that this was a tremendous loss Mm -hmm. and that there were aspects of those languages that were really, really unique that would be lost forever. But It wasn't until I really confronted my own feelings about my loss of Czech that I think the lights kind of went on and I started really thinking about the emotional implications and the cultural implications of that. Mm. You know, in a way, I I feel ashamed to say that, that it, it required having an experience that had some remote similarities for me to kind of really want to step into that emotional space. 
You are listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Julie Sedevi is a linguist and author of the book Memory Speaks on losing and reclaiming language and self. And I want to move on from loss now to how language can shape who we are. And there's a proverb she quotes in the book that goes, learn a language, gain a soul. I've heard it alleged that that is a Czech proverb. I've never heard it in Czech, so I'm not sure if that's accurate. But I think it comes from that subjective experience that people feel that they access different parts of themselves in different languages. So many people who are bilingual, for example, express the feeling that they're different people in each of their different languages. And I think that the research suggests that that's because they have had different life experiences. Their social environments are different in each of those languages. And once they step into that language, different aspects of themselves are foregrounded. You know, whether you can acquire an entirely new soul by virtue of learning a language, I think is doubtful. Mm -hmm. But I think if you learn a language embedded within a particular social context, and that social context is very different from the one in which you learned your first language, that does in a way translate into feeling like you have a different soul. There's research that seems to back this idea up. One of the first psychologists to look into this was Susan Irvin Tripp. And back in the 50s, she got a group of Japanese-English bilinguals and gave them a test. They were shown cards depicting scenes of people in kind of ambiguous situations. It wasn't really clear what was going on in these scenes. But the study participants had to come up with a story to describe what they thought was going on. And uh, the descriptions were quite different in the two languages. So for this particular group, the descriptions in Japanese tended to be very dramatic, very emotionally fraught. And in English, they were much cooler, you know, much, uh, much more neutral emotionally. More recently, in 2006, a study by researchers at the universities of Texas and California tried to measure whether a person's personality changed depending on what language they were communicating in. So, for example, when people take personality tests, there was one really fascinating study that compared Spanish speakers of Mexican origin uh, living in the United States. When they took the test in English, their personality profiles looked more similar to native-born Americans than when they took the test in Spanish. In Spanish, they began to resemble you know, Mexicans living back in their home country to a greater degree. Uh, so it seems to be, you know, something that's just triggered by by the use of the language itself. And another study in 2010 looked at whether people's actions or choices changed depending on what language they were using. This time, it involved Dutch-English bilinguals. Yeah, and the Dutch-English study is quite interesting because this was a scenario where people were were asked to play a version of the prisoner's dilemma game where they had to decide whether they were going to cooperate with someone or betray them, you know, such that uh, the best outcome would be if both people cooperated with each other. Hmm. And the finding was that certain group of subjects, when they were performing the game in English, behaved in a more competitive manner. And then when they were speaking Dutch, were inclined towards a much more cooperative strategy. And interestingly, that only happened for those bilinguals who had actually spent time in an English-speaking country. Hmm. So that suggests that it's not that 
English is inherently a competitive cutthroat language. Rather, it's that these Dutch English bilinguals who had lived in English-speaking countries had absorbed something about Anglophone culture by virtue of their exposure to those cultures day to day that they carried with them and that became absorbed in their use of the language. How strong is all this research, you know, when you take it as a whole, or is there reason to be skeptical of some of these findings? This is a very new area. So these are, yeah, very, very intriguing findings. They align very dramatically with the subjective experiences that many bilingual people report. And I think, you know, just the the sheer frequency with which people talk about this experience in their own lives suggests that there's something going on there. Hmm. And what researchers are now trying to figure out is exactly what's responsible for that subjective experience. And it does seem to be the case that it's it's not something that's built into the grammar or structure of individual languages, but that is probably coming from the kinds of experiences that people have had in each of their languages. So there's kind of a convergence of evidence from a number of different angles that points to this being a very plausible explanation. Some of the other research in this area has focused on the emotional baggage that's tied up in language. Um, You know, studies looking at how phrases in different languages might evoke different bodily responses. Can you tell me about those studies? Yeah, so there's beginning to be quite a lot of interest in the fact that later learned languages, especially languages that I think are learned in more formal situations like a classroom, don't seem to evoke the same emotional responses as early learned languages. So there's a range of studies that speak to this. One of this looks at you know, words that are emotionally loaded, like swear words or punitive phrases, you know, phrases that might evoke shame in a child, things like, um, you know, you bad boy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There have been a number of studies that suggest that people whose first early childhood language was one language, and then they later acquired a second, uh, have much more visceral bodily reactions to the same phrases and words in their first language than in their second language. Hmm. And this lines up with what many bilingual people say, which is that they find it easier, for example, to swear in their second language. It doesn't feel quite as taboo or as loaded or that they're going to you know, be punished for it in the same way or ostracized. I know a number of bilingual people who, who really will swear a blue streak in English, not being <laughs> their first language, but are very, very, very reticent to swear in their native language. That's interesting. And in terms of the emotional baggage stuff, what that made me think about was, you know, in trying to teach my son Urdu now, which is the first language I learned before English, the stuff that's easiest for me to recall is how to admonish him or to love him. (laughs) You know, everything else, the practical stuff I struggle with a bit. Oh my goodness. But those things I remember. Yeah. Yeah. That resonates. um, Absolutely. I mean, childhood is just such a uniquely emotional phase of our lives. And uh, it becomes very easy to access that part of ourselves in our first language. Is that stuff that was more familiar to you as well as you were coming back to the Czech language? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Memories of um, my child rearing. um, Yeah, those early experiences. And, And that's the sense in which I feel that English is not a replacement. So, you know, even when I speak to my mother in English, which she often prefers because she spent a lot of time in Canada and she's very, very fluent in English. She's acquired English to a very high degree of proficiency. So our adult conversations are easier to have in English, you know, to express our opinions, to Mm. talk about abstractions. But every now and then we'll slide back into check with each other and immediately 
she becomes very tender and I feel like I'm, you know, crawling back onto her lap and cuddling. And it's, it, uh, it, it really brings me to a very different kind of relationship with her when we switch into Czech. In 2015, 11 years after her father died, Julie decided it was time to take an extended trip back to the Czech Republic. She'd visited two years earlier, but that was a brief trip, only two weeks. This time, she was going for two months. Yeah, so what was, I think, particularly powerful about that visit is that I went for quite a long time, and I was immersed, absolutely immersed in a Czech-speaking environment where very few of my relatives spoke English comfortably at all. So, you know, if we think of languages as competing in the mind, until that point, my Czech had been really, really dialed down to almost inaudible levels, and my English was just roaring. So the first day that I arrived, I really just struggled to have a normal, basic, rudimentary conversation. It, it was really apparent to me how much disuse my Czech had fallen into. Can you give me an example of like the most basic of phrases you were struggling to say? <laughs> I, I was struggling to find words for household objects like fork, Lidlička. you know, or let alone trying to express anything about what I was thinking or feeling. Or, you know, what had happened in the past. It, it was just uh, felt impossible to do that. But over the course of several weeks, I suddenly had the experience that, you know, a word would leap into my mind. And I was sure that I'd never used that word, you know, in the last decade, perhaps. But all of a sudden it was there. At night, I even had the sense that I was waking up from dreams that essentially consisted of floating words and phrases. There were no images. It was just language buzzing about in my brain while I was sleeping. And at the end of that period of time, there was such a remarkable improvement in my facility in Czech that it just felt almost like I had linguistic superpowers. And by the end of the two months, could you have those more complex conversations? Yes. So, you know, I, I still struggled, for example, to have an elaborate political discussion, right. but I could certainly, I could construct a narrative, you know, which was a, a dramatic improvement. My comprehension had just grown in leaps and bounds as well over the course of that two months. How did you feel at the end of that? How did that experience make you feel? Oh, I, I can't tell you how powerful that experience was because in a way it was addressing a tremendous regret that I had personally in that my dad had at some point in the early 90s gone back to his home country to live. And after he died, I really felt like there there had been a lost opportunity. He had been asking me for a long time to go visit him in the Czech Republic. And I, I was just at a point in my life, you know, I had small kids, I was establishing my career, and I had personal difficulties that were just making it feel impossible to make the trip. So I never really got to see my dad in his native environment in which he would have, you know, felt comfortable. And that, that was a tremendous regret. So going back to his village and having conversations with his brother in the home where he was born and raised, you know, I actually slept on the same bed where my father and his three brothers had been born. There was just such a sense of, of connection to those ancestral roots. So it was really almost as if I were sitting down with my father's ghost and speaking to him in his language, and uh, it just felt like a, such a transformational experience. 
What's your relationship to the Czech language now? Well, you know, because of various reasons, including the pandemic and some other factors, I haven't been able to make a trip back for at least three years. And I feel the effects of that. I'm losing fluency in Czech, but, you know, I have a, a determination to go back as soon as I can and, and try to turn up the volume on my check again. Oh, fingers crossed that can be soon for you. Yeah, I agree. I live in dread that I'll be asked to do an interview in Czech with my Czech in its <laughs> current state. I think I'll have to find a Czech speaker somewhere to spend a week speaking Czech with me beforehand so I can kind of acclimate myself. <laughs> That's author and linguist Julie Sedeby. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer this week was Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kadar. Hudafis, and catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.